Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we ask that in the word enacted and read and proclaimed, it is your word that we hear for our lives and hearing believe and believing obey. Amen. There is an odd phrase in the passage that I'm about to read to you. Luke's telling of Jesus' baptism is not like the account found in Mark's gospel in this sense. Mark doesn't even mention the crowd who have come to hear John or receive his baptism. He tells the story as if there are only two people standing at the river, John and Jesus. Matthew's gospel tells of the crowd, but Matthew makes clear that there is one coming who is greater than them all, greater than them all, including John. And John sees Jesus standing in line and yells out, Jesus, what are you doing here? I'm not fit to tie your sandals. You don't need to be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. Heads turn. Who is it? Where is he? The Messiah? But Luke doesn't tell it that way. Oh, he has John saying that there's someone coming who has much more to offer than what he has to offer. But that's in a sermon that John preaches. When it comes to describing Jesus being baptized, there's just this throwaway line. Listen for it and listen for God's word. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the ruler, who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, my beloved. With you I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. When Jesus also had been baptized. Doesn't that sound odd to you? It's as if there is a manifest of everyone who stood in line that day, everyone who had been baptized that day. You could run your finger down the list until 
you finally find the name Jesus. I lost my passport once in Canada. Actually, I think it was stolen from my backpack when I had lunch in a restaurant, and, well, you know how those Canadians are. <laughs> but whether it was stolen or not, I lost my passport. I was on a skiing trip with Bruce Stockberger, his son Michael, and his brother-in-law Joe. I had to cut my trip short, go to Quebec, and sit in a waiting room at the U.S. Embassy that looked like every DMV waiting room I've ever sat in before. Banff? was beautiful, the scenery stunning. But there I sat in a plastic chair, staring at a wall that had a clock and a screen, waiting for E37 to be displayed so I could go up to one of the windows and get some help. I didn't know the people sitting on either side of me. They didn't seem interested in finding out that my name is George Anderson, B18. I normally would be skiing, you see. Um, I'm okay, I'm no expert, but I can ski black diamonds if they're no moguls. C-27. You know, I have a life back home. I'm a responsible father to three children. You want to know their names? D-7. I'm the senior minister of Second Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, E-34. Ugh. I have to get to E three more times before I can get help. Like everybody else in that waiting room, I had to wait for my number. I had to wait while others were helped like I needed to be helped. Imagine Jesus, Jesus having to sit in that waiting room, waiting, waiting, waiting for his turn. How would this story go if Luke were telling it? And Jesus' number also was called. I remember when my daughters were born, Rachel, for instance, after she got bathed and attended to, after Millie and I had the chance to hold her and after I could get my necessary tears out of the way, she was taken from the room to the hospital nursery and placed in one of those clear-sided cribs that are lined up equally spaced from the other. No matter the color of the baby, no matter how nice would be the car that would be used to take the baby home or how grand and modest or modest the home might be, each wore a white diaper, had this little plastic strip around an ankle. And those nurses, they were odd. They treated Rachel no different than they treated any other baby lying there. What if Jesus had been born in the hospital that day? On the second row of cribs and the third from the left would be this clear-sided crib with this card attached to its side. Written in magic marker on the card would be the name Jesus. If Luke's telling the story, and Jesus also was born that day. As with the last time I preached, Fred Craddock got me started on the sermon he suffered temporary paralysis once. He had to go through some extensive physical therapy to be able to walk again. At first, he would stand between bars and he would pull himself along, but there came a day when he would be one of four that would have the bars pulled away and he would be expected to walk on his own for 10 seconds. The first to try was Charlie, who had suffered a stroke. Charlie drooled. He could barely speak. His mouth was drawn. Finished second grade, a dairyman. A fine man, but he drooled, and Fred did not enjoy eating with him. 
And Charlie told the same story over and over again, that he was part of a promotion campaign where he milked a Holstein cow in a DCE flying over Atlanta. The only person ever to have milked a cow over Atlanta. You could read about it because it was written up in the Atlanta Constitution, but Fred did not need to read about it because Charlie only told the story, even with a mouth half working, only 867 times. And they pulled the bars away, and Charlie did it. He walked a few steps, and he got ice cream. And Earl was next. Earl was a mechanic who worked on 18-wheelers. Big guy, strong guy, tough guy, potty-mouthed. A jack slipped, and he was crushed. And now it would take all his tough guy strength to walk a few steps. But he did it, and he got ice cream. And then Elizabeth, a single retired school teacher, single car accident, she kept explaining that she hadn't been drinking. She also didn't like the way her therapist talked to her. Why do people talk to old people that way? I'm not a child. And Fred stood up for the therapist, but then later heard the therapist say, the reason you're feeling pain is because of your injuries. Fred had to admit it. She was right. Anyway, they pulled the bars away, and Elizabeth took her a few steps and got ice cream. And then it was Fred's turn, because he was called forward. But he wasn't called forward by name. No one said Fred or Fred Craddock or Dr. Fred B. Craddock, the bandy distinguished professor of New Testament and preaching at Candler School of Theology, Emory University. No, someone just said, next. And they pulled the bars away, and Fred struggled to do what the other three had done, but he did it, and he got ice cream. But what if Jesus needed rehab that day? What if the bars were pulled away and he managed to take his steps? I think all that Luke would tell us is he also got ice cream. Miller's baptism, that was special, wasn't it? We make baptism special around here. I mean, we meet with the parents ahead of time. We mix in a dollop of water from the Jordan River. I collected it myself to symbolize the biblical roots of baptism. We mix in a dollop of water from Scotland to symbolize the fact that the Presbyterian Church was born in Scotland. And we don't get the baptism out of the way so parents don't have to work hard to keep the baby clean and happy. No, we wait until after the prayer for illumination because the word enacted is as important as the word read in scripture and proclaimed in sermon. And you know how much we ministers look forward to baptisms here at Second Presbyterian Church. Baptism for us is never a have to. It's always a get to. We do it special. How many churches have children sing the welcome song like we do? But what would Luke say about Miller's baptism? That his is no more special than any other baby baptized here at Second? Or anywhere for that matter? Would Luke say of Miller what Luke said of Jesus? That Miller also was baptized? I don't know how to quite describe what Luke does with his throwaway phrase. There is this stripping away quality to a saying, and Jesus also was baptized. I mean, read his gospel. I mean, Jesus is for Luke the Messiah, the Son of God, 
the Savior of the world. But in his baptism, he's just another on the list. Where's the head turning? I mean, look at all who are baptized. The three ministers of this church, we're all baptized. I know you're glad to hear that. So are many inmates in prison. Most of those who are in church this morning are baptized. So are most of those who are skipping church this morning. There's a guy out there somewhere who rescued a dog that had been abused by its owner and a woman who makes it a habit to dump her fast food trash on the street, and they're both baptized. Maybe to understand Luke's perspective, we would need to listen in on something like a 12-step recovery meeting, if it's open, that is. Because there's this stripping away quality to those meetings when someone says their name and then doesn't follow up with, and I own a business, or I'm homeless, or I belong to a prominent family, or I live on the streets. Each one just says his name or her name and then says, I'm an alcoholic, or I'm an addict. And in that moment of introduction, everything is stripped away. They're all the same. Everything is stripped away except the reality of their need. And where's the dignity in that? Maybe it's in this. And Jesus also introduced himself. Maybe in the stripping away, there can be found the dignity of self-acceptance, accepting one's need, and accepting God's grace. It's what Luke's saying, I think. Remember, the baptism that John offers, the baptism that John the Baptist offers, is not the baptism that we had in our service earlier. It's not the baptism of the later church. What John is offering at the river is a ritual developed by the Essenes where one admits one's sins, one gets a ritual washing, and then just tries to live a better life. you got to try harder. you got to do better. It's also a baptism you can get over and over again when you continue to fail. So all those people who are lined up to receive baptism... At that moment at the river, it's not their shining moment. Not for most of them. They want to get in that river because they feel dirty somehow with their sins. And it is that moment that Jesus decides to join. And Jesus also is baptized. Can you see the dignity in that? And can you see the dignity in the way that we offer baptism now in the church? Because now it's not about something that we have to do, about our trying harder, about our finally getting it right when we've gotten it wrong, but it's about what Jesus did in being baptized with us, being in line with us, being baptized for us. The dignity is in the moment of need met by the gift of grace. Some have a hard time getting their heads around that. In fact, a tried and true tactic of bullies is to expose people in order to humiliate them. You know, like the boy made to cry in the schoolyard. Or the mistakes of a young woman published on social media so everybody can read it. 
On my trip to the Holy Land in March, I visited a Holocaust museum. It's the third Holocaust museum I visited. In each of the museums, you see pictures of intended degradation. For instance, in the Jerusalem Museum, I saw a picture of Jewish women having been literally stripped away, forced to stand out there in the street, naked in front of gawkers and mockers. The message is clear. You thought you were something, but you're just a Jew. The stripping away of Luke's gospel is not that. Yes, Luke is talking about a moment where it doesn't matter that you're a Pharisee or a Sadducee, a zealot or an Essene, a person of substance or a person of the streets. It doesn't matter what you've done in life, all that you've done to earn this reputation, to build up a name for yourself, to accomplish something, accomplish something even good in life. None of that matters. Standing in line, you are simply a person in need of grace. But what is there to gawk at? What is there to mock? Because Jesus also was baptized. And that's the best kind of dignity there is. It's the dignity we proclaim at baptism where God knows no favorites, but adopts us all as children. And it's the dignity we're going to hope for at death, where we have nothing left. It's all stripped away. There's nothing left but God. I remember something that Hayden Hollinsworth told me, a story he told me about his father, also named Hayden. I didn't call Hayden about it to find out if I got the story right because I didn't want him to mess it up. <laughs> I wanted to tell it to you like I remember it. His father, as many of you know, was once the longtime senior minister here at Second Presbyterian Church. The fellowship hall was built when he was the minister here, there is a portrait of him in Kirk Hall, standing right next to where my statue is going to be placed. <laughs> His ministry meant something. His life was important to many people. And his son told me that at the end of his life, he had a room at the South Roanoke Nursing Home. And Dr. Holly was content. He was grateful for his food. He appreciated anybody who visited him. He was accepting of his circumstances. I am sure he was happy he could live his life and that he had a chance to show his love for God and for his family and for his church, that he was able to accomplish some things when given the opportunity. But it wasn't as if he was looking for thanks. He was at peace, needing the care the nursing home had to offer him as he faced what we will all one day have to face, his life's end. Hayden had a dignity when almost everything else was stripped away. There's a reason we call death a second baptism. At death, we are, as they say, as naked as the day we were born. We are stripped of all pretensions, of all things earned, of any reputation gained, and of any right that we think we might have. And we stand there in that line that Ruby Turpin sees in her vision in the Flannery O'Connor story, Revelation. The line leads to heaven. And Ruby sees herself standing in the same line as all the people she had spent her life looking down upon. 
and she feels her virtues burning away. And she realizes that she has nothing to offer God, nothing that she thought she had to offer. And all she can think to do in that moment is sing Alleluia because it's enough. She is enough for God. I mean, what do you want to hear when your life has been spoken and your story is done? When it is your turn, what could possibly be better to hear than what everyone else, including Jesus, hears from God? Next, there's dignity in that. So go live your life. Jesus did. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.